Church, open your Bibles. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, the last one. And this is the last week that we're going to be in the series that I've entitled Untangled and What a Ride It Has Been. In fact, I want to do something as we uh, dive into the last chapter, which is just take a little trip down memory lane, remember a little bit about where we've come from. We've been a number of months in this book, and if you're more recently with us, we've made our way all the way from chapter 1 all the way to the end now in chapter 16. And I want to remind you that Paul uh, patterned this book on five big mega themes, five big topics. And again, the way he got here was he uh, had a letter that came to him from the Corinthian church in which they asked him some questions. He also had a visitor or a group of visitors that came from the church and told him what was happening at the church. And that formed the basis for him to write to the church the letter that we have now known as 1 Corinthians. Uh, these are some of the big topics. I have the topic as well as one verse that goes with it. If you remember, we started off chapters 1 and 3 and 4, uh, dealt with rivalries and factions in the church. And so people were saying, hey, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos, and they were making a big deal out of that. And Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. And so he was right-sizing them and saying, hey, uh, you're not following any, any human individual per se. You're following God, and we're mere servants of his. The next big topic, number two, is sexuality and marriage. And uh, there was even a guy in the church who had his mother-in-law, whom he was living with and having sexual relations. And Paul said, hey, this is not good. And he says, the pagans don't even do this. So I want you to act towards this guy. In fact, if need be, even remove him from the church. And his big reminder was, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, with whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And so our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, and we are treating them as such. The third big topic, here it is, food and idols. And if you remember, they had an issue of whether or not they could eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols in the temples that were in Corinth. Paul says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. And so he's saying, hey, there's a bigger principle here. You have a conscience. Don't go against your conscience. But more importantly, don't make somebody else stumble by your actions. So don't use your freedom in order to cause somebody else a problem. The next big one, four, is spiritual gifts and worship practices. And Paul talks a lot about the practices we have in the church as well as the spiritual gifts that are used in the church. But he says one thing is underneath all of those, and that is love. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So I wouldn't do anything unless I was motivated by love. And all of the gifts that God has given to his church have to have their underlaying of love. And there's one more. Number five is resurrection and uh, there were three weeks in which we talked again about the resurrection of our bodies and the resurrection of the Lord. And 1550 is the operative verse. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. And so we're all looking forward to, again, resurrected bodies that will have a brand new substance and a new freedom that's given to us with God. Well, as we come to the final uh, words of this book, the, Paul covers some very practical matters, 
And the matters that he's going to cover that are most practical are about the visits of some individuals that are going to come to the church. In fact, four visitors that are going to come to the church. And Paul is preparing those uh, individuals and he's preparing the church to receive those individuals. And so he's going to instruct the church about those visits and he's going to encourage them about their part in preparing their way for those visits. I'm picking up in 16 starting in verse 5 and this is the way that Paul closes the letter. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia for I intend to pass through Macedonia and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want you to, well, to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you for he is doing the work of the Lord as am I. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his, his will to come now. He will come to you when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all of you do, uh, let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you brothers, and know, and I, to you know the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they made up for your absence for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Achilla and Prisca together with the church in their house send our hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our brother, uh, our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. Raise your hand if any of you watched any part of the Summer Olympics in Tokyo. Did anybody uh, catch a little bit of that? The majority of you saw that. I enjoyed much of the Olympics this summer, and one of the things I noticed was that I watched some events that I had never seen before. Uh, the fact, I couldn't even tell you that they were Olympic events. I knew that kayaking for some reason was an Olympic event, but I had never seen canoeing as an Olympic event. And I was kind of caught up with some canoeing and just how much effort was required for that one. Another one that caught my attention was rhythmic gymnastics. Uh, it's the little, little sister to the, the big gymnastics and, you know, there's a synchronization to it and all the rest. I couldn't have even told you before the Tokyo Olympics that that was even an Olympic sport. One of the things that also caught me during the Olympics was a sadness. And I was sad for Tokyo. Tokyo had spent billions of dollars on infrastructure for the Olympics. They had prepared their airports to receive millions of visitors. They had stadiums that were completely ready for thousands of hungry and eager fans. And it was a big dud in fact, I've got a picture here of the stadium in one of the uh, Olympic events, and you can see the number of people that were there, just, just a handful and just a trickle. 
And so athletes were performing to literally empty stadiums. And again, I felt bad for Tokyo. The Japanese people are a kind and a welcoming people. And my sense was that they deserve better. Their, their moment in the sun had come and, well, it had turned into a gloomy, rainy day for them, uh, proverbially. Tokyo was ready for guests that never came. They had a red carpet. They were ready to roll out to the world and they seemingly left it in the closet. To add insult to injury, even some sponsors for the Olympics pulled back because they didn't want their brand associated with such a dud Olympics. And so I felt bad for the Olympics and for uh, Tokyo specifically. In our passage today, Paul is going to talk about four important visitors that are prepared to come to the church. And he says, I want you to prepare for their arrival. Now, they don't need to do anything as elaborate as build stadiums or build villages where these people are going to come and stay, much like, again, what would have happened at the Olympics. They don't have to do anything on that order. But what they do have to do is prepare mentally and personally for their visits, and they have to prepare to be good hosts. Let's remember in the ancient world, there was no Marriott Hotels. You didn't travel to another city and go to a VRBO or, uh, you know, any kind of a, a Airbnb. That was not a, such a thing. When you traveled to another city, you went and stayed with a person. You stayed in a home. And that's the way that the ancient world operated. And so again, whenever you had a visitor, they were going to come and they were going to stay in your home and potentially even stay for a significant amount of time. I want you to imagine right now having a guest come to your home and saying, yeah, I plan on staying three or four months. You know, again, some of you have that and you call that kids who are returning to the nest. I mean, so you kind of get that and you get what that's like. But kids are in a different category. Imagine that you had just a good friend who said, you know, I've come to spend some time with you. Imagine this. Imagine that I was perhaps a visiting pastor in the region and I said, hey, let me just come and stay in your home for a couple months. I mean, that would be getting real in a very big hurry. But that was common in the ancient world. We are obviously probably in a little different category from that. But Paul is saying to the church, I want you to prepare for these visitors, and this is of critical importance as he closes out the letter. So let's learn about the four visitors, and let's learn about the kind of ways that they needed to prepare for those visitors, and I promise I'll stitch this together of how this makes sense for you in just a moment. All right, let's uh, visit the, the first visitor, or cover the first visitor, and it's none other than Paul himself, the one who had planted this church, and he said, I'm coming back for a visit. It. And Paul says, uh, and I'm on point one here, if you want to put that up for me. Sit there. There it is. Paul says this, perhaps I will spend the winter, for I do not want to see you now in passing. So he's saying, a little short visit won't do. I'm coming, and perhaps I'm even going to spend the winter with you. This is not a hit-and-run visit. It's something that Paul knows. With all the topics he's covered with them, they need a time to be together. They need a time of simmering and soaking together. And he's saying, perhaps I'll even spend the winter. It's right now, it's coming upon Pentecost, which is the spring. And he's saying, I'm going to continue to stay in Ephesus over that time, but then I'm going to come to you after that, and I'm perhaps going to spend the winter time with you. Winter was never a time to travel in the ancient world. If you were on ship, you, 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 you risk being you know, shipwrecked. If, if you were going across land, dirt roads were washed out. So you traveled predominantly in the spring and the summer and you hunkered down in the winter. I've got a little uh, map here for you. And if you'll notice, Ephesus is in the red and Paul's in Ephesus. Corinth is over there to the left with the yellow arrow. 
Normally you would just take a boat and you'd sail right across. It was a common seafaring route. But in this case, Paul says, I'm going to make my way along the land route and I'm going to go up and over the land because I want to visit some churches that are in the Macedonia region. So he's saying, I'm going to make that longer visit and I'm going to come to you and I'm going to stay with you for a prolonged amount of time. Why would Paul want that long visit? Well, with all the things that he had just covered, he needs time to let that unfold now with the church. Let them ask more questions. Spend more time together. And he says, I won't come right now because I'm in Ephesus and there's a wide open door for me, but I intend to come to you and spend a longer period of time. Church, there's often times in which we are needing to have a longer visit with somebody, have a longer period of time with somebody. Short fixes will not do. You need time to, again, let things simmer and cook. Let me tell you, our discipleship relationships are like that. You know, oftentimes we wish if we could meet a couple times in a coffee shop, discipleship done, we're complete in Christ. It never works that way. It's long visits over long periods of time in which we see Christ formed within people discipleship takes time I also think about perhaps counseling and wouldn't we all wish we could go to a counselor one time and it's like all the problems just zippity doo here it is we're done you know this if you've been to a counselor I have before in my life and you know you spend the first month for them just getting to know your story you're really not even addressing any of the major issues yet. They're just getting to know who you are, the lay of the land, and maybe the longing that's in your soul, and now you've finally got a roadmap to kind of work from. But the first period of time is just a get-to-know-you time. Some visits take time. Prepare yourself for that. Prepare yourself in relationships, oftentimes, for the long haul, because that's what's going to be required, and that's what was required in the visit from Paul. The second visitor is Timothy, and I'm going to call his the at-ease visit. Let's remember Timothy is younger. Timothy is the traveling companion with Paul. And ultimately, uh, Paul is going to place Timothy in the church at Ephesus as the pastor. But he's not quite ready for that yet. And Timothy right now is just following along with Paul and going to the places where Paul sends him. And he says, I'm sending Timothy to you. Now, Timothy, I think he might be a little bit nervous to send Timothy to uh, Corinth. And why? Because he's like, I know the issues I'm covering with you guys, and I don't want to send Timothy into a meat grinder. I mean, he's going to go, and he's going to get chewed up by you and spit out. And so I'm encouraging you with all of the divisions that you have and you're looking for, you know, powerful leaders and Timothy might not be that for you. Timothy is, in fact, might be a more withdrawn or, or, or just a young leader, a green leader. And so I want you to be careful with him. I want you to put him at ease. In fact, this is what Paul says about Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.7. If you give me the next slide. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And he's saying this about Timothy. Timothy, I want to remind you, God didn't give you a spirit of timidity. And so he's encouraging Timothy, hey, get out there. I know you're young, but get out there. Continue on. And he's encouraging the church. There's going to be a green pasture among you. And I want you to welcome him. I want you to help him feel at ease. And this is one of the ways that we grow people, is that we take people who are just beginning, just making their first steps, and we welcome them. We help them. We're wind under their sails. And this is, again, one of the ways that God builds church leaders, is he takes young people and gives them opportunity. Can I just tell you, 
I am so excited for the teens and the young people in our church right now because they have such great opportunity with Pastor Nick. I want to commend him. But I also just feel like that they're taking on responsibilities and leadership in so many areas of our church right now. I'm looking right now at just a couple of them that are helping with the soundboard, helping with media, helping with cameras. And they are vital to the exercise of our church right now. And I am so excited that they are here and I have a place at the table with us. Can I hear an amen for that? Amen. We are excited for, for them. We can all remember when we did something brand new for the very first time. And one of the ones that is really fresh on my mind, it's a time when I was actually leading my first funeral. I was a brand new pastor, and I led my first funeral. Fortunately, it was an older lady. She had lived a long life. And so it was kind of one of those easy ones to say, hey, let's just celebrate a life long lived. But we got to the, done with the, the service. It was a funeral because actually the body was there. We actually followed the hearse and we went to bury the body that day in the cemetery. Short service there. But I came to the spot of saying, let's all recite the Lord's Prayer together. And what, for whatever reason, all that would come to me is the Lord is my shepherd. And it's like, that's not the Lord's prayer. That's not the Lord's prayer. Uh, the, the Lord is my shepherd. I, I didn't say it, but that's what I wanted to say. And after a pregnant moment that felt like an eternity, this lady finally says, our Father who art in heaven. And it's just like I broke the ice and everybody just kind of joined in and we continued on. And I was like, ah, oh, I've been saved from that embarrassing moment. I'm sure everybody knew it. But again, we all have to start somewhere, and we're all rookies at some point, and it's easy to look down on people who don't have much experience. That could happen in medicine, of course it happened in auto mechanics, and of course it can happen in ministry too. But Paul says, when Timothy comes, I want you to treat him well. In fact, he's like an extension of me. He's part of my team, and so I want you to treat him well. In fact, I even want you to give him some money and some supplies as he goes on to the next part of his journey so that you can help him on his way. There are some instances in which a person comes to you and they're so young that you think they're so inexperienced, they don't look like they have much to offer, so why should I really even care for them? Because they don't have much to give me. And that is a kingdom moment. It's a time for a hearty welcome. It's the time for making that person feel at home, making that person feel at ease. And uh, it's an environment, again, that we grow people in. Let me uh, end this little section with his favorite story. It's the story of Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison is developing the light bulb. And he's got a whole team of people around him that are developing the incandescent light bulb. They come with a copy of what they think is going to work, and he hands it to a young boy that's part of the team, and he says, take this upstairs so they can test it. He takes the light bulb out of Edison's hand, and he trips on the stairs and breaks the light bulb right down on the stairs. At that moment, everybody gasped because they knew it took hundreds of man hours to build one light bulb. Edison doesn't skip a beat. He looks at the team and says, let's get ready to build another one. A couple of days pass or a week passes, and they've got another light bulb example or prototype, and Edison doesn't miss a beat. He turns to the young lad and says, take this upstairs for testing. And the young boy receives it in his hands, hardly can believe that Edison would give him this opportunity again. But with great care, he carries that light bulb upstairs and gives it to the team for testing. And in that moment, Edison 
demonstrated something very important again about youth, about inexperience, that there it's worthy of giving that extra opportunity. And it was in that moment the boy was restored. He was restored very clearly, quickly, and fully to be an important part of the team. We have to remember when Timothy arrives in our life to put him at ease. That's part of our kingdom work. Number three, the third visitor to uh, Corinth is Apollos, and Apollos requires patience. Here's the deal with Apollos. Apollos was either unwilling or unable to come at this time. Verse 12, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. It's not very clear what Paul completely means by that. Was it that he didn't want to come, or is it meant that he could not come in some way? You have to remember this. Paul was talking about the factions in the church, and Apollos was a part of that group that were the people lining up behind him. So is it possible that, that Apollos even knew the church is a mess? I'm not sure he even want to go there. It's possible for that. Or it's possible he was working in some other aspect of the church somewhere else in the kingdom. But whatever the case was, he was a good speaker, he was a good leader, and the church wanted him to come. The church longed for him to be there because they wanted to hear him preach and hear him teach, and he was the guest that never came. He was the guest that the church really wanted, but for whatever reason, he couldn't make it. And so the church is likely dealing with a level of disappointment as they ask questions like, well, doesn't he like us? Or, or, or doesn't he consider us important enough for a visit? Or uh, why would he overlook us like this? And of course, all those questions place them at the very center of the whole universe. There's other things probably that Apollos is doing. But it really reveals also this idea that, again, they are looking forward to somebody and spending time with somebody, and that person is not available right now. And so the church is working on patience. They're working on patience, waiting for the arrival of Apollos someday. I love what Thomas, Thomas Akempis, the writer of The Imitation of Christ, says. Here's a quote from him. He says, he's not truly patient who will suffer only as much as he pleases or from whom he pleases. A truly patient man gives no heed from whom he suffers, whether from his superior or from his equal or from someone below him. And so the church is having patience worked into it right now. During COVID, we have had a gigantic exercise in patience. All the things that we have wanted to do, places we've wanted to travel, places where we visit, people we've wanted to visit, all those things have been kept back from us and we have been in this gigantic waiting period of patience in order to uh, uh, learn something from God in that. Church, there are times in which you have somebody that you want to see and they're not available. It could be a person that you rely upon, maybe a doctor that ha doesn't have any openings right now. Or maybe it's a school teacher. It's before a really important test. You want to see the school teacher. They're not available. Maybe it's a dentist or an orthodontist that you have an important visit with and they're not available. Can I suggest to you that it's at times like that that God is working something else into our lives and what he's working into our lives is that all humans are fallible. There is no human, as important as they might be in your life, that is Savior to you, and there's only one Savior. Now, again, I'm not down on close relationships. I'm not down on, on bonding and, and mutual help one to another. Those are all good things. But in the final analysis, every human is frail. We're all on feet of clay, 
and we are waiting for a Savior who is the ultimate for us, and we're learning how to rely upon him more and more. And so at times, we have this exercise of patience that God is requiring from us. There's a fourth visitor, and the fourth visitor is Stephanus, and his subject, his visit will require them to be subject to him and to people that are like him. Let me explain what I mean by that. Stephanus is likely somebody that they know quite well. Stephanus is the one who was the, among the first converts in their region of Achaia. And some people believe, and I think I follow along with this, that Stephanus was actually the letter carrier of this letter to the Corinthian church. Stephanus was likely the one that brought the letter from Corinth to uh, Ephesus where Paul was, which was their letter. And now he's the turnaround that's taking Paul's letter back to them. And so he is this letter carrier. Paul is cheering Stephanus because he says he's devoted to the saints. He looks out for people. He cares for people. He builds up people. He protects the church in many ways. And that's why, again, I'm commending him, Paul says. Likewise, he's got a couple of companions, Fortunatus and Achaicus, 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 I think that's what it is, and he says, uh, when I have both of those guys come to me, they're going to more than make up for your absence, and again, that may sound a little bit like a slam on the Corinthians, he doesn't mean it that way, what he's saying is, when they're here, they're going to more than make up for how much I long for you, or how much I love you, so I'm really looking forward to their visit, and Paul says, I want you to be subject to people like these. What does he mean by be subject? Well, it's learn from them, follow them, pattern your life after them. Paul says this, follow me as I follow Christ in 1 Corinthians 11. He's not being arrogant and saying that. He's just saying, I followed Christ for a longer time. And so as much as I'm following Christ, you follow me and you'll learn about how to emulate what Christ is like. And many times God puts people in our lives, like Stephanus, who are individuals who we could pattern our life after, who we could do the things that they do. I have a favorite book of mine on mentoring, and it's called Connecting by uh, Bobby Clinton. I've got a picture of it here. And he makes a very important distinction in the book because he talks in the book about active mentoring and passive mentoring. Active and passive. Active mentoring is when you spend time with another person and you are learning from them. You're either with them uh, in a one-to-one in -one relationship or perhaps a small group relationship, but you're learning from them in a very active one-on-one -on -one flesh way. A passive mentor is somebody that you perhaps never met before, but you've read enough of or you've learned from enough of the, their talks or the, the, the content that they have from their lives that you feel as though you know them, although you've never met them. I know that for many of you, Oswald Chambers fits that category. My utmost for his highest is one of the most read devotionals all over the world. And so again, Oswald Chambers is a passive mentor to many of us. Other passive mentors in my life might have been Henry Nowen or John Stott or Tim Keller because I've read enough of them that I understand what they're saying and I understand kind of how they would conduct themselves in life or action. And so Paul's saying we all have individuals around us who are either active mentors or passive mentors. We rely upon both of those and oftentimes we learn from individuals and we learn about how to conduct our lives as a result of how they have conducted theirs. Well, that is the four visitors and what they require. Paul would come and he would require a long stay. 
Timothy would come, and he would require a little care, put him at ease. Apollos would, would come someday, but until then, you've got to have patience waiting for his arrival, and Stephanus would require us to emulate him or be subject to him. I doubt any of you will have these visitors or visitors like them that will come and stay in your home. That won't happen. Uh, that's not kind of our culture. But you're going to run across them at church all the time. You're going to run across a Paul or a Timothy. You're going to run across uh, somebody who is an Apollos, who you'd really like to be with, but who's not available to you. You'll run across a Stephanus, who is somebody worth emulating in your life. And so as we expand beyond the leaders that Paul talked about, we're going to run across people who are going to need more time. We're going to run across people who are going to need a little more TLC, a little bit more encouragement. We're going to run across people who need patience, and we're going to run across people who call us to emulate them. I'm wondering, out of that list, which is the easiest for you and which is the hardest? I think we face struggles and trials oftentimes in all of those categories, but our importance, uh, the importance of interacting with people like that on an ongoing basis is, by the way, part of our own sanctification. God is shaping you as you meet those kinds of individuals. Turning to the close of the book of 1 Corinthians, what a journey it has been, and I'm wondering what part of this book has been most instrumental for your faith been most instrumental for God creating good thinking, good theology on the inside of you. I know for me, the whole issue of spiritual gifts was one that I really dove into, and I think I have a better handle on and better practice in my own life of those spiritual gifts, so I appreciate that. Maybe for you, it was, again, our bodies as a temple, or maybe it was your willingness to give up a certain freedom for a brother, or your desire, again, for resurrection, or your acknowledgement of how important resurrection is. As we close today, I'm encouraging you to uh, trust God's work to lean into God's work and his constant empowerment for the church. That's what he has said repeatedly in 1 Corinthians, is that he's given us as the church all that we need to pursue him in godliness. He gives the church his word. He gives the church his spirit. He gives the church his body, which is, again, all of us that are in this journey together. And that is all we need for our growth, for our perseverance, and for our completion in the faith. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful again for the visitors in our lives, the visitors that are going to come and require something from us that helps them but helps us too. And so thank you, Lord, and uh, let us be on the lookout for those individuals in our lives. We're also reflecting now on this long journey over so many months and thanking you for 1 Corinthians and for how much it's uh, dealt with our own lives and how much it's been used over all of the world for good. We thank you again for the message of 1 Corinthians. We ask that it would take deep root in our lives. We are a grateful people, glad that we are called to be sons and daughters of Christ and of you, Father. And we, Lord, are now yielding our lives once again, saying... Let us be a fragrant offering for you. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.